What's up, everyone? I'm Brandon Jenkins, and you're listening to Mogul Behind the Beats. This is the place where we take a look behind the scenes and break down how Mogul gets its sound. So this season was all about the two live crew and the rise of Miami bass. It was super important to us that all the original music composed for the series did two things. First, it had to capture the time, late 80s, early 90s. And second, it had to capture the place, Miami, Liberty City, and teen discos tricked out with stacks of speakers. So we turned to a composer named Nana Quabena. That's one of his beats right there. Nana's a producer and he's worked with artists like Kanye West, Janelle Monet, Jadena, John Legend, and Rick Ross. He also made a lot of the music for the first season of Mogul. Another thing to know about Nana is that he's a true hip-hop scholar. He loves thinking about the history of hip-hop and how the genre's sound has changed over the years. I started our conversation by asking him why he wanted to come back to work on another season of Mogul. I'm just like a big history buff, right? And I, and I love being able to just study the past and study, you know, the people that came before me. Um, in Ghana, we have a saying called Sankofa, right? And the symbol of that is um, it's a bird flying forward with its head backwards, right? And the, it basically means that you can't really know where you're going until you see where you came from, right? And so I think that that shows like mobile that really um, speak to, you know, uh, different generations that led up to what helped pioneer this genre that's the biggest genre, <laughs> arguably globally, you know what I mean? Um, is it's, it's, it's an important show. And I think also for generations to come, to kind of know and have access to these stories, um, you know, so for me, that's just ultra important. And so anything I can do to kind of help that mission is something that I'm completely down for. So in season one, clearly um, it was a very New York hip hop story. But for season two, mm -hmm. uh, we traveled down to Miami. I'm curious what your thoughts were on Miami bass. Like, did you come up listening to that type of music? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I studied it for, for a time in college, actually. Um, college was kind of, you know, I grew up on, you know, listening to a lot of African music. You know, my dad playing, you know, different records in the crib from, you know, the Marleys of the world to the Fellas and Sade, uh -huh. so on and so forth. You know, obviously coming up as a teenager, it's just, everything is just hip hop, right? So it's like listening to DMX, listening to Nas, listening to, to Busta, right? And then I remember going to college and being like, okay, great. College is when I really started focusing on becoming a DJ. So I was just trying to collect mad different samples and different sounds and know about different genres and different places, so on and so forth. So there was a time where I studied Miami bass because I was just like, man, like <laughs> it felt like it felt like in a lot of ways, it felt like um, funk kind of like essentially lent itself to um, Miami bass in a certain kind of way. Right. It was like New York was about boom bap and breaks, right? And then dope, you know, like raps over top of that. But I felt like the idea of groove and the idea of rhythm and the idea of getting people's bodies to move was something that Miami bass understood in a whole different kind of way, you know? And so me as a DJ, as a producer, and just as a fan, wanted to understand that. Word. Um, I actually want to play a piece of music that you wrote for the show uh, right now. Mm -hmm. For us, the cue is just mm -hmm. super important because it appears at the start of episode one when we're first setting the story up. And for me, it just feels like exciting and like something's about to happen. Here, uh, let's play it. Awesome. Wow. This is the music Nana wrote. 
And here's a taste of how we hear it in the show. This is a moment when Trick Daddy and Trina break down what Luke Campbell's fight for freedom of speech meant for hip-hop. Talk them niggas to the Supreme Court. He went in there and he represented. He dressed the part, he spoke the part, and he acted the part. He went and fought for something that paved the way for all of us to be able to come into this platform to do what we're doing. Like, it would be none of us here without that, you know? That was bigger than hip-hop. That put Miami on the map. So what's going through your mind as you're just starting to piece that together? Like, for me, it, it captures energy perfectly, and it just automatically makes you nod your head if you're stuck in a seat, and if you're up, you start dancing. I think what was going through my mind in general is just like, man, just groove, just groove. And for me, my philosophy when I create in general is always like, I feel like if I can get your body to move first, then I can get your mind to move second. Hmm. Right. Okay. And, and yeah. I think, I, I mean, that's like, that's like the power of yoga sometimes, right? <laughs> it's like, all right, great. You going in, you doing a hot yoga, vinyasa, whatever it is, and you're doing all these poses. But really, all it is really, you know, it seems on a surface level like it's physical, but it's really activating your mind and ultimately your spirit too. I've always loved music that was able to get you to both party and ponder. Hmm. Right. Like and, that. And, and that to me, yeah, that's that's like when music for me is super powerful. And and that's and we think about how many artists that we've had, you know, leading up to this moment that have been that they figured out a way to do both at the same time. I think James Brown was that in funk. You know what I'm saying? I think Fela was that in Afrobeats. I think Marley was that, you know, in 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 reggae and roots reggae. And you know what I mean? And so when, when I hear music like that, you know, and I, and I try to make music like that, that's kind of always my intention behind it. Is like I know that this is a gateway. I know that this is a gateway to to, to something uh, larger and greater. Um, but yeah, if that's what came through, that's great because that was just <laughs> again that was just intentions that were set um, going into not even just that beat, but also going into this this project in general. I'm curious what the biggest um, what are some of the big differences between the kind of music you were writing for season one and then taking this energy and using that to write season two. Yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I think, you know, I think the style is different. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, I remember, I you know, I grew up in Philly, right? And so, you know, being from the Northeast, you know, it's the the climate is different. The weather is different. You 100%. know what I'm saying? It's like when them winters hit, you know what I'm saying? Those winters hit, them jackets get thick. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> them hoodies come out. You know what I'm saying? Them tims get laced. It's like a whole different kind of energy, right? And when you're surrounded by people, whether that's in Philly or like places like New York, you just always feel a constant looming energy that's always over you of other people. People are in your personal space. The music felt like that. What you're hearing is one of the East Coast beats Nana wrote for the first season of Mogul. Season one told the story of the rise and fall of the hip-hop executive and lifelong New Yorker, Chris Lighty. You know what I'm saying? Like, when you when you have a lot of early hip-hop on the East Coast, it sounds gritty and dungy and... And it sounds like like death is looming, and it's just it's, you know what I'm saying, and it's like it's like it's danger, you know what I'm saying, and yeah. it's, it's all that kind of vibe, you know what I'm saying, and and I've known that you know my whole life, right? And season two was like you know it was like it's just different. It was like a different kind of energy, where it's like it felt like communal party energy, right? But also at the same time, party with a purpose. Here's a Miami bass track Nana wrote for the second season of Mogul. This shit goes hard. 
I don't think that people even really knew the origins of Two Live Crew. And, you know, this it's, 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 it's such a clear thing, whereas, like, people thought they were just... What they became known for is what people thought that they always were, right? And I don't think people really understood kind of the other subtext, even in their lyrics sometimes, right? And how, in a lot of ways, just being Black in America in multiple eras has always been political, right? It's always been... It's not like it's just we exist in a vacuum and people are just partying and having a good time. It's like there are real things kind of going on. You know what I mean? And so for me, I think um, it's just a different side of life. Yeah, um, It's the side of life where it's like, you know, it's it's OK, great. We out here and it's collective fun, moving and driving trance energy almost, if you will. Um, but still not being disconnected from like what's really going on just, you know, in the culture at large. What new elements were you able to play with? What new instruments that maybe you wouldn't normally use, like maybe cowbell or and like songs maybe you had mm-hmm. to have on loop? What um mm-hmm. what artists were you drawing inspiration from? Yeah, I mean it, it's crazy, bro. Like like <laughs> going back to like certain drum machines, bro, and like and then downloading and then re-downloading all the different you know various plugins and sample packs to think about like the eight hundred eight, right, and then the nine hundred nines and it opens up like another, it's almost like a portal in your mind where it's like, okay, great. How can I play with some of these same sounds and kind of make it such that it feels like an homage to some of the music that was coming out during this era. And then also simultaneously kind of, kind of push it forward. So, um, so yeah, man. I mean, I, again, I think that was the biggest thing was just going back to, to some of the, the, the building blocks, you know, and the, the equipment that these guys were using and being like, okay, great. Let me bridge the gap with this and kind of see my, what my approach would be. Coming up after the break, Nana breaks down how he wrote the music featured in some of Mogul's most memorable scenes and goes deep on how musical instrument became a weapon in war. The next piece of music I wanted to talk to Nana about comes at a really critical point in the story. The moment that the Two Live Crews album, as nasty as they want to be, was declared legally obscene. Here's the music for that scene as Nana wrote it. And here's how it sounds inside the show. The judge says, you all in the media write about the First Amendment as if you know what it is. I'm going to teach you some about the First Amendment. Lock the doors and read the opinion. And then he passed out uh, copies of his decision. It was like 50 pages or so where he went through Miller versus California and obscenity. I get the copy and I just look at the end because I don't care what he's saying. I just want to know what the end is. And I saw at the end that he found it was obscene. Okay, so I've actually got the brief that was given to you for this cue. Um, our senior producer, Matt Nelson, wrote, you know that music in the social network that Trent Reznor did to show the building action? Something like that. But Miami, mm-hmm. and it builds to a climax. So reading that, how did you work off of that brief to create what we just heard? It goes back to the idea of like the party and purpose idea, right? I mean, you literally have, you literally have a local government <laughs> that is trying to suppress a cultural movement using the powers of litigation in the courts, right? 
I mean, that, 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 that's, that's the ominous part. That is the super political part. Yeah. You know, that is the part. I mean, like, like think about, just think about like, like it's just, it just boggles my mind because it's all about like, think, like literally think of, think about that same exact case in 2019 right now. You can't yeah. even fathom it. No, you can't. It, you can't even fathom it. Like what? Like, and, and, and it shows you that like, these were the fights this is this is the blood, sweat, tears, and fears. Like when he's getting up on a Donahue show and he's talking about like, and he and he and it, it really hits him. Like, yo, this could go really bad. Actually, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's a real. That was a real. That's a sacrifice. That whole career, that genre of music, was a sacrifice. You know what I'm saying? Because if that didn't happen, we wouldn't even be talking about none of this right now. You know what I mean? Like things would look drastically different. Okay, so when you think about the two live crews battle to stop their music from being banned and their fight for freedom of speech, mm-hmm. how important is it to you that all these years later, you have the freedom to express yourself the way that you want to do? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's as important as water is to human life. Damn. You know, it's like, it's like, I mean, if you take that from people, what, what, what else is there? You know what I'm saying? Especially as, uh, you know, from our people, you know what I'm saying? In times where they took everything. When times when they took everything from us, right? And 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 it don't matter the context. It was like, and that's from the beginning of time when people are taking land to, to modern day right now where people are taking land through gentrification. You know what I'm saying? And the war, the war might not necessarily be physically trying to take the land from you, right? But it's it's economically trying to take the land from you. Right? When they're trying to take your land, they're trying to take your job, they're trying to take, they're taking your people. You know what I'm saying? They're taking your, 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 like they're t- they're taking so much from you. The one thing they'll never be able to strip is the 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 spirit of music and your soul. Never. When someone tries to take that from you, it's like you don't took everything else, bro. You don't already took everything else. Bro. You already took everything else, and you're trying to take this. How dare you? How dare you? And so I think for for black people at large, like that. The idea of sound and music has been a part of our, 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 our not only just celebration but survival. Like for me, like you know, I, just to give context, like I'm, I'm a, I'm a Shanti, right? My family's from Ghana. In Ghana, you know, the way the tribes work is you belong to your mother's tribe. My mom's Ashanti. We're from the Kumasi region. You know what I'm saying in Ghana, right? And Ashanti means of war. Right. And so out of all the tribes in Ghana, we were known as the warrior tribe. Right. And when I think about that, one of the one of the um, the key elements for us as warriors, when people were coming to take ours. One of the key weapons in war for us. Is the talking drum. Let me and people are going to ask, why is that? Why is a drum? How is that a weapon? Right. So the concept of the talking drum, right, is that we would have these drums and you find these throughout West Africa where it's not just you hitting, you know, some sort of skin that's on the head of a drum. There's also these strings that are attached to it. And so the strings determine the tension of that skin on the on the drum head. And so what happens is you now can control how much tension that skin has on this drum head. So if I squeeze it really tight, and I hit the drum, it has a really high pitch. 
And then if I loosen my grip on the drum, then it has a really low pitch. Right? And so the masters of this drum got to a point where the, the, they could use this drum because it, now the drum, the same exact drum changes pitches. And so the masters of this drum got really good at it so that they could actually mimic the human voice with this drum. The advantage that that plays in war, right, is that now I can actually use this drum. Now that I can get this drum to have different pitches, I can actually create a language, right? If I hit this note three times at this high register, this medium note, go back up once, it's like Morse code now. Yeah. It's like now I can actually create a language based off of this drum. And that's exactly what they did. They created a language off of the drum. Off, and that's why eventually it got the name the talking drum. Because you could actually make sentences from this drum. And the reason that this is a weapon in war is that besides light, right? The only thing that travels faster than a physical, any physical object on earth is sound. Sound travels faster, right? So if, I'm at, if, me, and, if me and you are at war, right? You're an opposing army. You know, you got your horses. You got your men on horses. Mm -hmm. I, got, I got my drum, right? I know that that messenger that's on a horse, he's not going to reach uh, his, his, where he's trying to deliver faster than my drum sound will message the nearby battalions of like, yo, these guys are coming. They're flanking left. Boom. I hit that off a of drum sound. That message spreads faster than a man on a horse. That was literally, that drum is not just music for us. That was a weapon for our survival in my tribe where I come from. Right? How perfect of a metaphor is that? That the drum <laughs> was attached to when people tried to kill us, take our land, you know what I'm saying? Like, and take everything. The one thing that we could use against them was our drum, was our music. That's nuts. And so for me, that, that's, that's, that's the power of music. So, so when, if someone's trying to take your drum and someone's trying to take, they're trying to take your soul, they're trying to take your spirit. And you know what I'm saying? And, and what else do after that, then there's nothing left. So when music is used in that kind of way and someone feels that threatened to remove your voice, they're trying to remove your soul, bro. You know what I'm saying? And so that's why I respect it. Like, that's why when, I, when, I, when I'm seeing these guys and they're fighting, like, that's the level of the fight that I'm seeing. I'm like, they're trying to take, they're trying to rip the soul from these people. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? How dare they? How dare they? That's heavy, man. <laughs> man, um, yeah, man. We got a final <laughs> cue for you. Um, uh -huh. Changing gears from all the fast and hard beats, you also scored just this really beautiful moment at the end of the episode that we made for DJ Uncle Al. Um, we want you to take a listen. Mm -hmm. I think that that mode and that cue and that even larger that idea it's just the idea of release right like the thing that makes music great the thing that makes life great is when you have been in a suspended period of tension 
right? And sometimes life is like that, where you're just going through a chapter where it's like, man, you just got all the stresses in the world. You know what I'm saying? Like, you got bills to pay. You got, you know what I'm saying? You got health problems. It's like, you got other people that are relying on you. There's all, there's a million, and, and you just feel stress and tension, right? When you go through that tension and that stress for an extended period of time, there's nothing that feels more glorious than release. It's that moment of being able to breathe, right? It's that moment. It's like what I was talking about, like, you know, when you're so used to, like, New York and being on a crowded subway and all these energies on top of you and then for the first time you get to go to like Oregon or something like that yeah. <laughs> and the air is different and it's crisp and like and there's space and there's mountains and it's you know what I'm saying like it's it's that's what that moment is so um before I let you go, I just got to ask you, what you got coming up next? You know, will we hear a, will we hear a Miami bass record from you? What you got? Man, I, you know what's funny? I will say, y'all definitely have me making some shit where I was like, you know what? Let me just let me just dabble <laughs> in this world for a little bit. I'll, 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 I'm not going to say anything too soon, but I will say y'all, y'all influence me too. I'll say that. I'll say that much. So kudos to y'all. Thank y'all as well, man. That's tight. I'm, I'm looking forward to yeah. it. Hell yeah. No, no, thank you. Absolutely, bro. All right, before I get into the credits, I want to do a quick PSA. Spotify is the best place to listen to Mogul. Go there for early access to new episodes and hear all of our bonus content. We've got exclusive interviews with Denzel Curry, Flo Rida, and extended scenes from the DJ Raw episode. So, all you gotta do is take out your phone, download Spotify, and hit the follow button. That's easy. It's one, two, three. Mogul is a production of Spotify and Gimlet Media. This episode is produced by Wallace Mack and Saeed Tijan Thomas, with help from Chumo Se. Our senior producer is Matthew Nelson. Our editors are Lynn Levy, Kaylin Kenny, and Chris Morrow. Sound design and mixing by Haley Shaw, Music supervision by Matthew Bowl and Liz Fulton. And this episode was scored by the one, the only, Nana Quibena. <laughs>